why the publisher of Rune 2 just sued a defunct studio, and why Bethesda could be next. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and today we're going to talk about a lawsuit. And it's a lawsuit that popped up on my timeline based on some questions that I received from a reporter from Game Daily Biz who wanted to know exactly why this lawsuit was happening. And while there are a number of different reasons for a lawsuit to occur, the interesting point here was that this publisher, Ragnarok, was actually suing a studio that basically went out of business last month. And that's Human Head Studios, who you might be familiar with from making the original Prey game. But Mr. Cullen here, who was doing the article at Game Daily Biz, wanted to know from me, why would anybody sue a defunct developer? And at the time, I was in meetings, I was doing a few things in the legal world, uh, and I said, well, there aren't a number of reasons why you would sue somebody that doesn't necessarily have deep pockets, but one of those reasons can be that you didn't get proper notice, that they didn't give you information necessary if they were going bankrupt. Uh, And in this particular case, because Human Head was actually purchased by Bethesda, and we're going to talk about exactly why we think that that's the best way to describe what happened between Human Head and Bethesda in a little bit in this video. Because it was purchased by Bethesda, they could be setting up a claim of successor liability. And we're going to talk about the details there. Uh, And certainly the details that are the distinctions between purchasing a company's equity, its stock, and purchasing the entirety of its business, and purchasing its assets. Because a company owns things, right? A company isn't just its equity. It isn't just everything that makes up that company. It also owns that desk that it puts in the office. It owns that filing cabinet. And one of the ways that you can organize the purchase of, quote unquote, a company is to buy substantially all of its assets. And I think it's pretty clear that that's what Bethesda did with Human Head. And there are reasons to do it that way. But ultimately, I wanted to flag this story because I do think it's interesting. Uh, I do have a quote in here that talks about some of those issues, especially ones that we're going to talk about in this video. I will link it in the description to this video. Please do check it out. Uh, I did want to kind of bring in another source because I think Eurogamer has some really good quotes here about what's happening. uh, And I wanted to bring them into it as well because they also linked directly to uh, the source material, the actual litigation uh, that Ragnarok is bringing that we are, of course, going to talk about in virtual legality. Uh, And so in this Eurogamer article, it says, Rune 2 developer Human Head being sued by publisher for abandoning game and allegedly refusing to hand over assets. Rune 2 developer Human Head Studios is being sued by publisher Ragnarok after it abandoned the game one day after its release in order to join Bethesda. Human Head, best known for the original 2006 version of Prey, launched its Viking-themed action RPG Rune 2 as an Epic Game Store exclusive on the 12th of November. As such, it was something of a surprise when the developer announced it was closing its doors to be reborn as the Bethesda-owned Roundhouse Studios the very next day. As you might imagine, those that purchased Rune 2 were somewhat nonplussed to discover there was no longer a studio to support the game a single day after launch. However, they evidently weren't as nonplussed as Rune 2's publisher Ragnarok Game, which called Human Head's sudden closure to resurrect as Roundhouse shocking news in a message to customers. And we're going to take a look at that message right now because they absolutely did say that. And then they followed that up with what we are going to be talking about today. They said, hey, hi, everyone. We wanted to give you an update on Rune 2 and our current status. This message is from the Rune 2 development team. As we've said before, we love this game and we at Ragnarok Game LLC will continue to support Rune 2. 
We've poured in two and a half years worth of passion and work into this project. And after a successful launch on the Epic Game Store a few weeks ago, we have received so much feedback from this great community. Our plan is to update and develop future Rune 2 content for months to come. As mentioned previously, we had no warning that our long-term partner and friends in this project would abandon it during its most crucial moment, leaving our team at Ragnarok Game LLC to shoulder both the development and publishing burden of launch, all on its own. Since Human Head's sudden closure, announcement, and discovering the active concealment of their acquisition, so you can see they're setting up exactly what their claims are, and one of those is going to be that they hid the fact that they were selling to Bethesda, which is not really high on my list of crimes that they might have committed here. We'll talk about that in a second as well. We have repeatedly requested access to the final launch build source code and Rune 2 game assets, the stuff that they paid to develop. This is so we can continue to support, update, and execute future DLC for our community. As part of the publishing agreement on Rune 2, Ragnarok Game LLC has paid for the development of these assets and is the rightful owner of them. After repeated refusals by Human Head to produce these assets, we've had no choice but to file a legal complaint in order to obtain the Rune 2 game assets. We have exhausted all possible options before getting to this point. This is not the step we wanted to take, but it is necessary in order to fulfill our promises to our community. So you can see their thrust here, the focus, at least as delivered in messaging to their community, is that they want to get their assets back. That when a publisher pays money to a developer, the developer makes that art, makes that code, builds up this game, and the publisher has ostensibly paid for it, but it's basically in the control of the developer. They have that access, and a lot of the times the publisher allows the developer to maintain that access, maybe doesn't get source code copies all the time. Maybe Ragnarok will change that policy in the future for future contracts. But what they are claiming that they want to do is basically just get all of the assets back so that they can support it either themselves or if they don't have that kind of coding background, I don't know Ragnarok game, to outsource it to another third party that can give the support they want to this game. Obviously, the developer of the game leaving the day after it is released is not a very good marketing plan, and so they are also upset at that, which we will see in their litigation. But ultimately, what they are claiming here is that they just want the assets back, and so it's unclear to me, just looking at this from afar, whether or not if Human Head, now Roundhouse, now Bethesda, really, gave them all the assets, gave them the source code, gave them the art, whatever it is that they have in respect of Rune 2, whether this would all go away. And I think there's a possibility that it would because at the end of the day, if you've listened to virtual legality before, you know you mostly don't want to get into a big litigation lawsuit with someone like Bethesda. And yes, the lawsuit that we are about to look at isn't technically with Bethesda right now, but because Bethesda purchased all the assets of Human Head, you can easily see them potentially becoming a party, either asking to join or just trying to defend against what could be a future action uh, against Roundhouse or themselves directly. So it's kind of a complicated issue. And right now, Ragnarok has sued Nine Realms, which is the real name of Human Head. That was a doing business as name. But it also sued their founders, their officers, uh, Christopher Reinhardt, Ben Gokey, and Paul MacArthur. And one of the things that you'll see in this litigation is that you, they are trying to assert liability against those as individuals as well. That because what they are claiming is fraud, intentional willful deceit, and misrepresentation, that they feel that they can go after the individuals for these reasons. Uh, and those are always more difficult cases to make. You know, when we're talking about a contract, a publisher and a developer enter into a contract, those are with the companies. Those aren't with the individuals. So 
while you can successfully sue an individual, especially if they are malicious, which is one of the things that they're trying to prove, they're certainly asserting here, it is a more difficult road than coming after the company because it's the company that has signed its name on the dotted line for these contracts. These individuals that are the officers of the company aren't supposed to be liable, but can be liable if they do these very nefarious things that they are being accused of. And so they are brought in here to maybe put a little bit more skin in the game. Again, the question that was posed to me was, why would you sue a defunct studio that closed its doors the day after the game was released? The One of the reasons is because you can also try to attach it to the individuals. And if the individuals have that potential liability, then maybe you have some leverage and you can get them scared about what their potential exposure would be and get them to at least the settlement table. And again, that all presupposes that what they really want is to get the source code is to get these assets that they claim they have ownership rights to. And we're going to see as we go through this, and I'm not going to go through every detail here because I don't want to waste your time and I don't want to bore you to death. Uh, But as we go through this, you will see there are areas where they claim that the source code is owed to them. They claim that some of these things are owed to them, that maybe this particular complaint isn't as fulsome as I would have hoped. When we're talking about contract claims, one of the things that you can do is you can actually reference the direct contract section. I would have loved to have seen a reference here that talks about what the actual definition of the intellectual property being conveyed is so that we can see in black and white that the source code was intended to be theirs. Because you can absolutely enter into a publishing agreement where the developer owns the source code and all the all the publisher gets is the object code and the right to sell that, to license it, to market it, whatever else you might agree to in that contract. But let's now dive into the actual complaint here. There's a lot of background here. As we've seen in previous complaints that we've looked at, there's a lot of uh, negativity. There's a lot of kind of uh, complaining, very much a jilted kind of sense from Ragnarok that they really are unhappy with human, what human head has done here. And they talk about the relationship. They talk about the fact that they had agreed to pay milestone payments of $3.5 million. They went over these milestones. They actually wound up having to go from 11 milestones to, I, I believe, at the end of the day, 23 milestones. They have all these issues with whether Human Head was actually meeting its obligations under the contract. That's all color that they give to the judge or anyone else that's evaluating this, potentially a jury down the line, to try to establish that Human Head is a bad actor, that this is the side of the equation that you should be against just from a kind of equitable principle stance. From a legal stance, it's not terribly convincing right? Because what they go on about here is that human head wasn't able to meet its milestones. So we amended our contract and we extended the milestones and we had additional payments and all these other things that are very normal in the course of business, certainly in the course of software development, where if you're familiar with video games or any other type of software project, you know that there are a lot of delays, that things don't always work out all the time on exactly the timeline that you anticipated. And that's really why milestones are used in these kinds of projects is so that you can say, hey, you have to hit X before you get another $100,000 and to motivate the developers to hit that X and to also get everybody aligned kind of from an incentive perspective. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a game and you're $3.5 million in, you have to figure out exactly how much more money you're willing to put in, what kind of extensions you're willing to give, whether or not you're going to outsource it further, et cetera, et cetera. So this is kind of normal. And the fact that Human Head wasn't hitting its deadlines is certainly something that you can complain about. It's not necessarily something you can sue on, particularly if you amended and restated the agreement to provide for kind of an extension to the milestones. But what they want to establish is that Human Head are bad actors. These are bad people, Judge. And so they were missing their deadlines. They weren't performing as promised. They collected all this money. And then look at this, Judge. Look at all these stories. They shut down. Bethesda immediately hires them. They close and are reborn immediately as Roundhouse Studios. This was all planned. 
Looking at paragraph eight here, despite earlier assurances from Human Head that it would not do anything to damage the Rune 2 launch or Ragnarok, less than 24 hours after the launch, Human Head publicly announced its acquisition by Bethesda, Ragnarok's competitor. Human Head did not inform Ragnarok at any time that Human Head was seeking an acquisition partner or otherwise looking to make a corporate change. Whether because of malice or greed or a nefarious attempt to regain the valuable rune intellectual property or all of the above, there can be no question that Human Head timed the announcement to maximize damage to Ragnarok and Rune 2. So this is what we might call puffery or uh, hyperbole from the plaintiff's attorneys here, right? There absolutely can be a number of questions about the timing here. One of the things I would say, and if you are familiar with virtual legality, you know we've talked about this before, is that the very first step in an acquisition process is a term sheet. And that's when you agree as to what people are buying, what's being sold, what the price will be. And part of that term sheet is just to establish that, hey, if we're going to have the lawyers draft up 600 pages of documents, we want to make sure darn well that we know exactly the economics that we are agreeing on. So you enter into that term sheet two, three, four, six months before you actually do the acquisition because it takes a long time to draft those documents and to negotiate them. And because it takes that time, one of the things that you agree to as part of that term sheet is to say, hey, we're not going to tell anybody about it. And that includes your contract partners. So if Ragnarok didn't have as part of their publishing agreement some kind of obligation to inform them of a potential change of control, of a potential acquisition, then this is pretty much just puffery. Them saying, hey, they didn't tell us. And frankly, the marketplace, every acquisition I've ever worked on in 15 years would say, once you enter into that term sheet, you basically can't tell anyone. Now, certainly if this was an important relationship for Bethesda to maintain after the acquisition, it is something that they could ask specifically to have Ragnarok discussed with that this was going to happen and that they wanted to maintain that contract. The fact that it occurred after the contract was at least partially completed with the release of the game indicates to me, not necessarily malice, although that certainly could exist, but more that this contract was functionally complete and that there might have been a few little hanger-ons and support requirements, and we're going to see those in a second, but that at the end of the day, the game was released, so whatever liability could potentially attach to Human Head for actually getting the thing out the door no longer existed. This seems completely tied to the fact that they wanted Rune 2 to be launched. They didn't want that to be a roundhouse project or a Bethesda project, and so the acquisition was set to be the day after that contract ended, but they didn't really consider the support term, and now we've got this kind of issue where they didn't immediately hand over the source code. But there are open questions as to whether they have to do that as well. Again, because the contract isn't actually referenced in this complaint. So all we have are Ragnarok's assertions of what belongs to them. But suffice it to say, the point here is that there are other reasons besides malice or greed that the acquisition could have taken place the day after or shortly after the launch of Rune 2. We then get a lot more color about the various parties involved here, who Human Head is, who these officers are. They are operating in Wisconsin. The development agreements, how the milestones work, a lot of detail here. Uh, Human Head is not meeting its obligations under the contract, Judge. They're very bad people. Please uh, make sure that you understand that when you are deciding whether to kick this out of court. Uh, and then Human Head abandoned the game shortly before its November 12th launch is interesting, right? This is one of those things where they say, hey, they agreed to have live ops plans and post-launch bug fixes. We were on phone calls. And then a couple of days before launch, basically every single employee that they tried to contact, quote unquote, went on vacation. 
And now with hindsight, we know exactly what that was. We know that the employees were going to get fired from uh, Human Head and get rehired at Roundhouse. And at the end of the day, it didn't make sense to kind of have these conversations of a support structure that they wouldn't be offering. But again, if that support requirement were part of the contract, there's no question that by not offering it, Human Head, which after this acquisition by Bethesda is essentially a shell with nothing in it, but potentially a few assets that remained that Bethesda didn't purchase, that Human Head would be breaching its contract because it wouldn't be performing whatever services it was supposed to perform for Ragnarok. So if that is the case, and if they have a contract that says that, and they have Human Head not performing those services, it's a pretty easy breach claim to make. That doesn't get Ragnarok what it wants, though, because Human Head might at this point be uncollectible because all of its assets went to Bethesda. Moving further in the litigation framework here, it says Human Head fraudulently concealed its plans to join Bethesda. They said on November 13th, one day after the Rune 2 launch, Chris Reinhardt announced to the press that they were winding down the business and closing its doors, and we reached out to our friends at Bethesda for help, and with the formation of Roundhouse Studios, Bethesda offered every employee of Human Head a position at the new company. On November 15th, Bethesda itself confirmed on social media that it had acquired Human Head as part of its Roundhouse Studios. Here's the kicker in paragraph 47. Roundhouse Studios and Human Head have the same exact business address, the same Human Head team of employees and principals in the same physical location and were reborn as Bethesda's Roundhouse Studios in just days after the launch of Rune 2. So if we are looking at this from afar, other than changing the name on the door, and this is what Ragnarok is asserting, nothing changed. We might consider that, and this is going to be an important phrase, a mere continuation of the business that already existed. And this is important because when we talk about the differences between an asset purchase and an equity purchase, ordinarily in an asset purchase, you can separate out what you are buying and what you are not buying. And we're going to take a look at an example asset purchase agreement, which is way more complicated than it needs to be, but it is one that's easily found on Edgar, which is the publicly filed SEC contracts that I like to look at sometimes just to take a look at terminology and to highlight exactly what happens in an asset purchase agreement, because I think that is very clearly what occurred here and what Bethesda was trying to avoid was taking on the contractual obligations of Human Head Studios which makes sense because Human Head has contracts that Bethesda doesn't want. And so because it doesn't want those, you organize something as an asset purchase agreement. I've pulled up, like I said, a random asset purchase agreement from Edgar and just to talk to you about how it works. So this is an asset purchase agreement between a company called Social Real, uh, Reality and Halyard MD Opco, uh, which is buying Social Reality. And we go through a bunch of definitions and you know, this is my day job. This is what I look at all the time. And you can say, oh, well, that looks like fun, Rick. Uh, but ultimately, what the main obligation here is the purchase and sale of these assets. And so we look at section 2.01 of this agreement. It says seller shall and shall cause its affiliates to sell, assign, transfer, convey, and deliver to buyer and buyer shall purchase all those goodies as applicable, all right, title, and interest in and to under the business properties, assets, goodwill, and rights of seller and its affiliates of whatever kind of nature all these other legal terminologies used or licensed by seller and primarily used in the operation of the businesses of the closing date, including the following. So this section basically says, we are going to buy all those assets. We're going to buy these receivables from you. That's money you're owed. We're going to buy these contracts 
from you, assuming that they are listed on this specific schedule. Those are the contracts that are going to be assigned. We're going to buy your IP. We're going to buy your furniture. We're going to buy your real property. We're going to buy the permits that allow you to function as a business. All this good stuff. But we're not going to buy everything. We're going to exclude some assets. We are not going to buy contracts that are not assigned to us. So we're going to actually parse these out. We're going to look at your contracts and we're going to put some in a bucket that's assigned and some in a bucket that's not. And to the extent that they are not assigned, those remain part of your shell company, which is no longer going to exist. And we're going to assume some of your liabilities, like the liabilities associated with the contracts that we actually purchased, but not the liabilities that aren't associated with the contracts that we didn't purchase, right? If there's a contract that stayed with you, we are not taking on that liability. And that's what Bethesda tried to do here. And that's what Bethesda probably successfully did here, in all honesty, because the overall thrust of corporate contract law in an asset purchase context is that purchasers are allowed to do this. They're allowed to separate out what they want to buy and what they don't want to buy. And the reason I think it's so obviously an asset purchase is because they talked about firing the employees and they talked about them being rehired at Roundhouse. And that's exactly what you do in an asset purchase context, right? Because the entity isn't changing hands. Human head still exists. So what happens here is I pulled up section 6.03 of this agreement, but it says prior to the closing date, buyer shall determine in its sole discretion, which of seller's employees, if any, to offer employment and shall set the initial terms and conditions of that employment for any such employee to whom it offers employment, including wages, benefits, job duties, and responsibilities. So the buyer will come in and it will decide, who am I going to hire? I don't necessarily want everybody at Human Head Studios, though in this case, it was the fact that they wanted everybody, but I don't necessarily want everybody. And to the extent I don't want somebody, we, go, we look at section B here. It says seller shall terminate or shall cause to be terminated on or prior to the closing date, the employment and service of all employees, right? Because this entity isn't going to function operationally anymore. So what we do is we fire everybody and then the buyer gets to hire who it wants. And in, in this particular case, Bethesda hired everybody. But because they hired everybody, you've got this issue of successor liability and mere continuation. But I just want to talk a little bit more about what the actual claims are here, but focusing absolutely on the fact that Ragnarok is setting up that Roundhouse Studios is essentially human head even after this acquisition, because there are exceptions in the law that would potentially allow them to go after uh, Bethesda on these points. We go a little bit further in the litigation claim. They said, hey, Human Head affirmatively misrepresented that it was going to continue its relationship, again, because it's hiding the fact that it's entering into an asset purchase agreement with Bethesda. Human Head refuses to transfer certain Rune 2 property to Ragnarok. Now, this one is important. Remember, this is what they actually highlighted in their message to the community as being important to them. They say the Rune 2 agreements expressly provide that Ragnarok exclusively owns all right, title, and interest in the content and materials developed by Human Head for Rune 2, including deliverables, software, parenthetical, including source and object codes, work product, and the Rune 2 game. Now, ordinarily, what I would like to see here is the actual language, the provision that says you get the source code, because there are certainly agreements that don't give that to you. There are different publishing relationships. We have looked at them in the past. We have looked at the fact that Bungie got to keep all of its code from Activision for Destiny, which is one of the reasons that they were able to so successfully split off from Activision because they had the rights to their game already, even if it cost them a pretty penny to actually get out of that contract. But here it's just a raw assertion. 
that they owe us these things. Now, certainly they owe them the game. I mean, I think that goes without saying that the publisher has the rights to whatever it was that they bought with their 3.5 million plus dollars. And that might be just the object code version of the game. They are claiming it's the source code, but they aren't referencing any specifics of the actual contract. And then we get to paragraph 61, which is just really interesting. To add insult to injury, defendants continued to alter the source and object codes for Rune 2, despite repeated and explicit instructions from Ragnarok that defendants immediately cease all such alterations. On November 19th, 2019, a week after Human Head laid off all its employees and closed its doors, and after months of deficiencies, defendants now insisted on altering the Rune 2 code despite demands that there be no changes to the code at all. Ragnarok had understandably lost trust in defendants. Furthermore, Ragnarok reasonably believed that the former Human Head employees were now working for Bethesda. Nevertheless, over Ragnarok's express instructions to the contrary, Defendants not only continued to change the code, but even uploaded and attempted to launch an altered, unapproved Rune 2 build to the Epic Game Store staging. This move could only have been driven by malice and a desire to undermine Ragnarok, the success of Rune 2, and the Rune 2 community. Again, that last sentence is lawyer puffery. I do think there are reasons that one could come up with why, even after this, and I don't think Human Head or Roundhouse at this point in time has the right to do this because they are certainly not contracted with Ragnarok at this point in time, but we don't have the contract in front of us, so it's not a thousand percent clear that that's in fact the case. But there are reasons why they would want to make these changes, right? If Rune 2 were buggy, and I haven't played this game, so I don't know. If it were buggy, if it had catastrophic problems, if Human Head's name were still on it and people knew that Roundhouse was Human Head, there are still goodwill branding reasons for Human Head slash Roundhouse to want to fix those bugs, to want to correct those things because they don't want negative goodwill to be attached to what it is that they are actually providing, right? So it makes sense at a certain level that they might want to make these changes even if they don't specifically have the rights and that wouldn't be malice or greed. Not necessarily the case. Could be malice, could be a desire to undermine Ragnarok as the plaintiffs claim here, but not necessarily the only thing that we could possibly come up with. Then we get to the causes of action here. They are what you would expect. Breach of contract, which should be pretty easy to prove if Human Head slash Roundhouse aren't doing what they said that they would do in the contract with Ragnarok. Fraudulent concealment against the defendants for not telling them they were going to be bought by Bethesda. Some of these are pretty hard. That'll, again, come down to the contract. Did they have an obligation to actually tell them that this was happening? What obligations did they have to give notice about a potential change in control, about a prospect that they might not be able to meet their obligations under the contract? There's any number of pieces of language that could be included in a contract to cover these kinds of things. They're not specifically referenced here. They're just kind of asserted that this was a problem for Ragnarok. And undoubtedly it was, but it's not necessarily a great one. They then have a cause of action for conversion, which is essentially stealing the money that they stole this money and that they didn't provide the services in respect to that money. Fraudulent misrepresentation, uh, negligent misrepresentation, we accidentally lied to you, and unfair business practices, which we have talked about before, but it's kind of the catch-all umbrella term in California to say, hey, if you did all this stuff, it's also unfair business practices because there are other companies operating in California that aren't violating the law. And so it's an unfair business practice. It's just, again, kind of an umbrella term. And so they then asked for compensatory damages, the restitution of the monies paid by Ragnarok to defendant, which probably is a little bit broad. They probably can't get all the money back. If there is a game, that would be something that would be adjudicated, of course. Injunctive relief prohibiting future unfair business practices, punitive damages, penalties against them, attorney's fees, 
pre-judgment and post-judgment interest. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's the entirety of the claim. And then the real question is why make this claim at all, especially for this money that in all honesty, human head probably doesn't have. And one of the reasons for that is because you're trying to set up a litigation. You're trying to win a litigation against human head for breach, for potentially this fraudulent kind of component. And then what you want to do is you want to bring Bethesda into it, right? We've talked about it. We've kind of elided it around this video. But if Roundhouse is really just human head, it is a possibility. It's a very difficult case to make. It's not a case that is often a successful one in the United States jurisdiction. But it is a case that you can make that says, while the general rule is not to impose liability on a successor business following an asset sale, in California, it's listed here, and that's where the claim is brought. And whether or not this is an asset sale in Wisconsin or Delaware or California, all these things could pop up. There are a number of exceptions as explained by the Supreme Court of California, and mostly these exceptions are in every state. There are certainly nuances, but they appear in Wisconsin. To some extent, they appear in Delaware. This is how they are described in California where this claim was made. And these are the exceptions. These are the ways that a purchaser that even tries to buy assets and not the whole company could potentially be responsible for the liabilities of the company they purchased. There is an express or implied agreement of assumption. We looked at that in the asset purchase agreement itself. You absolutely take on whatever you agreed to take on in black and white in the contract. The transaction amounts to a consolidation or merger of the two corporations. So no matter what kind of weird structuring you do, if the law finds it to be, quote unquote, a de facto merger, then you might have that liability even with all that structuring. The purchasing corporation is a mere continuation of the seller. And in all likelihood, since they are Roundhouse, that probably was a separate entity. And now Roundhouse looks to be the same as human head. That would be the primary claim. And since it's owned by Bethesda, potentially going after the assets there, at bare minimum, the assets in Roundhouse after it was purchased, that because it's a mere continuation, and that's why you establish it's the same address, it's the same officers, it's the same employees, it's probably the same vendor contracts and everything else, that if it is a mere continuation, maybe we can make a claim that says, hey, we don't just have to enforce this litigation victory against human head, which probably doesn't exist and can't pay its bills here, but we might also be able to enforce it against Roundhouse, and we might even be able to enforce it against Bethesda, where the real deep pockets live, right? That's the entity that most certainly has the money that you would try to go after if you're Ragnarok and you're upset. So the real long-form answer to the question that was posed to me by Game Daily Biz yesterday is, hey, maybe you're trying to set up a pathway that gets you to Bethesda at the end of the day. Now, we've looked at their litigation documents. We've looked at some of the kind of angry language. I think a lot of this is lashing out. They're unhappy with this set of circumstances. I think they absolutely could win a breach of contract claim, depending on what their contract says, of course. Uh, but a lot of this is probably just trying to get out in front of what they see as a potential marketing issue angry customers, and really being angry that this was all done behind their back. And sometimes you have litigation that is really somewhat emotional in component. Uh, and I'm not sure what kind of success they will have. I am interested in actually seeing the underlying contract there uh, if they provide that. Uh, but without that underlying contract, a lot of what you see in that initial claim uh, is raw assertion. And I think ultimately trying to set up a bigger fish than just the now defunct Human Head Studios. But certainly it's something worth watching. And if you're interested in these kinds of things, it might be something we wind up covering in virtual legality again as this advances and whether or not Bethesda tries to join the action or tries to help Roundhouse kill it, uh, even though Roundhouse isn't a named party. Certainly the officers at Roundhouse, which were formerly officers at Human Head, have an interest. Bethesda has an interest. Roundhouse has an interest. It will be interesting to see what happens to that claim now and in the future.
This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this video, we are talking about business and law and pop culture and video games and software and technology and all of that all the time. Please share it around. Please like, please subscribe. Tell folks that you've seen this uh, and let them know about the channel. Otherwise, if you saw this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.